0: 7 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. You can come back here every other week for your bi-weekly fix of horror movie history. For today's topic, we're going to be looking at Chapter 2, continuing the rise of Euro Horror Chapter, and we're going to be turning to page 3 for Hammer Horror Films. I couldn't do this one alone, so I called in a guest here. He is the co-host of the Father and Son Horror Movies podcast and has been around the horror movie podcast community for years and years. Um, so we're welcoming in Pastor Matt Rawlings. Matt, how you doing?
1: I'm great, Trey. Thanks for having me on, man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know um, you've had me on Father and Son a couple of times and kind of got mm-hmm. me into that podcasting stuff. So I'm just grateful for that and wanted to get you back on here to talk with you some more.
1: Well, yeah, I appreciate it. And like I said, when we were off air, you're knocking it out of the park, man. I love what you're doing. Love the podcast. I will apologize ahead of time for my wife's puppies who are who are right now running around me chasing each other and growling. <laughs> um it's like Benny Hill chasing the girls from the old British TV show. Um so I will apologize for that ahead of time, but I appreciate you having me on, man.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I appreciate the compliment there, Matt. So we're going to we're going to kind of do like a broad overview of Hammer Horror on this episode. Like I said, I think a couple episodes ago, I'm trying to make this into if we get into a topic, it doesn't always have to be a straight on biographical topic. It can be just kind of like this variety show. We're getting a topic and we're getting some different categories here and there. So Hammer is what we're going to focus on today in the history of Hammer Films. And Matt, if you'll allow me, I'm going to go into a little bit of a brief history here and just chime in whenever you hear something interesting or you'd like to talk about. And we'll get that set up, and then we'll kind of go into the films. Go for it. So in 1934, we had William Hines, who went by the stage name of Will Hammer. He founded Exclusive Films with Enrique Carreras, and Hammer was born as a subsidiary of Exclusive. Now, Hammer only made five films before they went belly up in the British film slump of 1937. Exclusive, though, the parent company survived— And they cut a deal with ABC Cinema Chain to provide them low-budget films. Now, we get to 1947, and they reformed Hammer. They go on to release their first film under the new version of Hammer in 1948. Early on, Hammer focused on adaptations of radio dramas that were popular in Britain at the time. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't really get into horror for a little while. I mean, it would be until 1955 when they went and adapted the popular TV series at the time, the Quatermass Experiment, into a feature film. And that would be their first kind of toe in the water of that sci-fi horror. Yeah, you know, and that's still, yeah, a, yeah. I mean,
1: the Quatermass, you know, kind of TV series and the films and so forth, still, you know, really resonate in in Britain, kind of like the way that maybe we would look at a 50s film like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or something like that. that. That really hit home in Britain. Yeah. And have you seen any of those um, film adaptations, Matt? Uh, Yeah, but a long time ago. Um, It's been a while. My introduction to Hammer, uh, you know, I was born in 72 and probably when I was four or five, there was a station out of Cleveland, WSAZ, and they would have a horror movie host called Superhost. And for some reason, even though he played horror movies, he wore Really bad Superman outfit. I don't know what that was about. (laughs) And they would usually play universal horror movies during the day. And then they would he would come back at night on Saturday nights. And that's where they would play like either a Corman, like 50s, 60s movie or a Hammer horror film. And that's where I was. And that's probably the last time I saw one of the quartermass films. Okay, yeah, I checked out one this week. And unfortunately, I think I checked out the wrong
0: one for me. I checked out quartermass in the pit. Yeah. And that one just didn't I I kind of found it a little slow and a little plodding and it didn't really get to much until the very end of the film. Now, I think I made a mistake and I think I should have watched the first film in that one because mm-hmm. I was seeing some clips from that and I was in the premise and I was like, this sounds pretty interesting. So I think I might go give that one a shot. But specifically, the Mass in the Pit did not work for me. So. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I think I think Shop Factory released both of those quarter mass films that still exist on, on, on Blu-ray, if I if I remember correctly. But a lot of those early Hammer films go that way. Right. I mean, like mm-hmm. this past year, I rewatched The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. Oh, yeah. And with Peter Cushing and it's black and white, you know, and of course, Hammer's thing, I'm sure we'll get to this was we're going to reintroduce the monsters, but in color. Right. That was their yep. big, big deal. Yep. But the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, and I'm I'm one of those people like Wolfman from HNP. I don't believe in Bigfoot, but I want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, really, same, same. <laughs> it's yeah. It's <laughs> like, I want to live in that world. I just don't believe that world exists. Um, so I was excited to see the movie and it's a slog, man. It's it's kind of yeah.
0: slow. Yeah. Um, fortunately though, I know they would pick it up definitely with their as they yeah. got deeper into their releases and but I think that's a big thing, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. Let's let's jump back and get through this so we can really get to the good stuff here, Absolutely. Matt. So jumping back a little bit, I know they both, um, Enrique and William, invited their sons on board, and the four of them would become the directors of this company in 1949, um, and they would move into the exclusive offices and rename them Hammer House, famously. So we've got a family business here, which is really cool that we have this family production studio. Then in 1951, they set up the other piece to their puzzle when they purchased Down Place and expanded it into Bray Studios, um, where they would go on to shoot many of their feature films. And this would be a famous location for Hammer Films. Yeah, I
1: mean, it was it's amazing now to look back. And, of course, as as you mentioned, I mean, there there were ups and downs for Hammer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Yep. You know, going back to the 1934 and the bankruptcy and and then, you know, of course, they would file for bankruptcy again. And but you have to give credit to them for I mean, yeah, on the one hand, I mean, they did also did like pirate movies and stuff. Right. I yep. mean, yep. Yeah. You know, you know, they would kind of jump all around genre films. But I think when we really get into their horror films, which we'll talk about, I'm sure I think they were for their day pretty bold. Yes. And you know, they had a run that was pretty amazing. Yep, yep, and that's what
0: caught up with them really Matt is they couldn't be bold enough to kind of chase yeah. what was going on in eventually at a certain time. Well, but, when we get to Vampire Circus, they took some risks. I mean, Yes, yes, and they took a lot of risk when they were trying to compete with other things, but we'll we'll definitely get into that, but like yeah. you were saying, they put out so much stuff. They released 59 films in the 60s alone. Wow. Under Hammer. Wow. So that should tell you. And like you said, they jumped all over the place with different genres. Horror was their main thing and the horror, um, the classic monsters specifically. But they went all over the place. Like you were saying, it's it's across
1: the board what ju- what genres they were covering at the time. Right. Even drama. Like, I mean, I know that some people listed as horror, but like Rasputin, the Mad Monk is is really more of a historical drama than it is a horror film.
0: Yep. I wanted to catch that one, but I couldn't get that one in. I, I've always been fascinated with rasputin but it did seem like it was much more of a
1: drama so i was like ah, i'll check it out but maybe later it is and christopher lee is very good at it i think horror fans will still like it i think you can call it horror adjacent but it's not it's not a horror film yeah that makes sense and again they're all over the place but i
0: think most horror fans know them for their big horror movies especially with the monsters mm-hmm. let's see what else i got here so I think there were two things that Hammer was trying to do. First, gothic horror at this time was a little bit vacant. Um, Universal was had kind of moved on to a stage where it wasn't doing as serious of films and it wasn't taking itself as seriously.
1: Yeah, they really embraced the Abbott and Costello comedies yeah. with
0: the classic monsters, right? Yeah, and then we didn't get the boom of the Italian gothic yet, which you could argue maybe took a little bit from this Hammer boom that would start. Mm mm-hmm. um, So gothic horror seemed like a good place to start. And then next, they were trying to compete with a TV market by offering violence and sex that they couldn't air on TV at the time. So mm-hmm. I think that's where they were really trying to go after in their market. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, they introduced the world to Ingrid Pitt, um, you know, among (laughs) others, uh, largely. And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the hallmarks of of Hammer, especially in the 60s, but even in the 50s with like the mummy movie and and so forth is, you know, introducing like the female, you know, lead would always be uh, like almost posing for like a Victoria's (laughs) Secret catalog. Yeah. Yeah, and then right away, I mean, with um,
0: with The Curse of Frankenstein, that bright red blood, too, on the violence end of things, yes. it was just... Which, speaking of that, that would be their first, I would say, their true horror film would be The Curse of Frankenstein in 57. Mm. I know this was also the first time that we'd get Lee and Cushing on screen together, because Lee was very much an unknown at the time, from what I understand.
1: Yeah, which is interesting, because when you look at those early films, of course, Cushing is the one who gets the lead. But who is the guy who is the most striking, the most physically <laughs> imposing, the guy with the booming voice? It's Christopher Lee. Yeah, and
0: I've I'm, I've got some notes down here somewhere, but Christopher Lee has especially there was a period of time in the '60s there where he was in a few films, and his look is just so striking. Um oh, okay. I know definitely like with the whip and the body with uh, the Bava film. But yeah. I think like in um, Taste of Fear or Scream of Fear and in The Devil Rides Out for sure, he just had oh, this yeah. striking, like put together English gentleman look about him. And you just couldn't get that like the, you know, the dark eyes. And it's just I really love the look of Christopher Lee and it kind of sticks out.
1: Well, he's just and he's also just so physically imposing oh, yeah. <laughs> his yeah. entire life. I mean, even when you get to the bad Star Wars prequels and the Lord of the Rings and all that kind of stuff. I mean, to the day he died, he was just a physically imposing individual.
0: Yes. Very tall. And that's why they picked him for the Frankenstein role, right? Is because he was just this imposing figure. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I know with Frankenstein, they had to tread very carefully um, to only use things from the novel. They couldn't do anything that was in that 1931 movie because Universal was threatening legal action at the time. Yeah. Which they
1: would continue to do even through Monster Squad and everything else. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But this would still, with everything that was kind of divorced from that movie, this would go on to be the most successful film of that year in Britain, according to what I read here. Oh, and wow. that that meant Hammer was just off and running, right? They've got, they've got this breakout hit in the UK, at least. And it, I think it would give them momentum going forward.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and it's a great movie. I mean, if you – one of the things I love about Hammer's Frankenstein series is – you know it largely tracks right i mean Mm -hmm. one of the complaints that a number of people have critics have like with the friday 13th movies or whatever franchise is that there's no rhyme or reason to them you can't put a timeline together that really makes sense but with the frankenstein movies with hammer i mean it seems like they really tried to kind of like follow one after the other i know there are some leaps there but generally speaking You can watch all of those. And what are there, seven or eight of them, of the Frankenstein Hammer movies? There's a lot. I think that's second to Dracula, right, of the amount they've done. Yeah. Yeah. And they were especially cramming in the Draculas at the end there in the 70s. I mean, you Uh just have a whole spate (laughs) of them. Um, But with the Frankenstein movies... You know, with the ex- I think the exception of one, you've got Peter Cushing as the doctor and, you know, they they really, I think, do a pretty good job considering, of course, that audiences back then weren't tracking because there's no Internet. They're rarely yeah. shown on TV, you know, but I think they did a pretty decent job of keeping up the storyline.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I 100 percent agree with you there. And that's another trademark of the Hammer stuff as you go through. And if you look at their let's say you just go to Wikipedia, you look at their filmography. And you'll see out here in the notes section all of these different, you know, fourth entry in the Dracula franchise, fifth entry in the, this franchise, second entry in this trilogy. Like they tried to make these contained type of stories. And I don't know if that was coming straight down from Hammer or if maybe his fans had kind of looped
1: them together like that later. But you could tell that these films clearly fit together. Yeah, I mean, even I know there are oddities like you got, was it Dracula, Prince of Darkness, where Christopher Lee refused to say any lines? Yeah, um, yep, yeah. I mean, that's that's a little odd, um, especially after the horror of Dracula, where he's pretty verbose. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, still, you know, like, yeah, there are outliers to be sure. But compared to what we get with franchises in like the 80s and 90s, it's much more compact.
0: I absolutely agree. Because all of our favorite slasher and those type of franchises just go in completely crazy directions and they'll do all kinds oh. of one-offs and you can't keep track of the continuity and
1: No, I mean Friday thirteenth, part two and three, I mean and I love <laughs> yes. both those movies, but you know, Jason goes from having long hair and skinny to being a bald WWE wrestler overnight. Yep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then he goes into space. So. <laughs> and eventually he goes into space. <laughs> Everyone went in. All the great slashers went into space except <laughs> of for course. Michael Myers. but Which John Carpenter tried to do. He just couldn't get greenlit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a tough pitch meeting. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's finish this up here and then get into the films. You mentioned let's Horror see. of Dracula, and I want to get into that, too, because that's another pivotal point here is – Horror of Dracula would release, and I think that's their next horror film after The Curse of Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. and the vitriol that got from critics propelled this movie so far that it would even have international success, and at that point, Universal executives took notice, and they made their entire back catalog available to Hammer, and Hammer Horror is born, essentially. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep, and they got all kinds of money coming in from U.S. production studios. I know I, I'd watched one the other day, and it had the 20th Century Fox logo, I think, in front of it. So that might have been The Devil Rides Out, but
1: which is a great movie, by the way. Yes,
0: yes, absolutely, and we'll we'll definitely talk about. You know what? Let's yeah. just talk about that right now, Matt. The Devil Rides Out, because this is one of my. I know this is Christopher Lee's favorite Hammer film. Yep. Personally. For-
1: the one he said he wanted to be remade with modern special effects, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on The Devil's Rides Out? I, I absolutely love it, and I love it primarily because of the acting. I think the acting's really strong in this. I, you know, and I think you can say that about a lot of Hammer films. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say that about The Mummy. You can say that about the entire Frankenstein series. But I, I really appreciate the acting in. The devil rides out, and I can see why Christopher Lee—that was, you know, near and dear to his heart. Now, of course, that tagged him with a label of that he was an occultist and all this other kind of stuff. I saw <laughs> an interview with Christopher Lee once where somebody asked him if it was true that he had like ten thousand books on the occult, and his answer was, "Are you kidding me? I'd have to sleep in my bathtub." Um, <laughs> he said, "I have a few." He said, "I don't have 10,000. He's, you know, but he just went back. He just thought that that. That particular film of all the ones he made, especially for Hammer, was just, you know, really well made, and and, and I agree with him.
0: Yeah, that would uh that turn him into the Dave Doctor Shock
1: Becker of occult books, right? Yeah, exactly. As um. many DVDs as <laughs> Dave has, Dave, DVDs and Blu-rays, that's how many occult books he has. Yeah. Yeah, but
0: you know what, Matt? That's the part I find the most interesting and I like the most about this film because I love these films that kind of delve into the occult and deal with these maybe cults and trying to foil these cults. Mm-hmm. And I love all those scenes. I love the portrayal of what I'm assuming is the devil in this, right? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I just like the image of when they give a form to it. And I like a lot of the image of just the... The robes and the ceremonies and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that really separates it. Unfortunately, you know, this would come out the same year as Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. But and I was looking earlier, 68 was a
1: pretty strong. They had some pretty strong films there. Oh, my gosh. Night of the Living Dead, Rosemary's uh, Baby. Yeah. Yeah. Great, find general? And, um, d- yeah. And didn't. Wasn't it? Was it 68 or 69 that Dracula's Risen from the Grave came out? I think it was 68. It might have been 68. Yeah which has one of the most, uh, you know, which is a Hammer film and the Dracula, you know, corpus. And and I remember seeing that as like a six-year-old. And still that opening scene resonates with me when you've got a corpse hanging from a church bell. Yeah. I mean, it's just for 68, that was really gutsy. And that really struck me. I remember seeing that as like a six-year-old going, wow. Yeah, and...
0: I think that's a strong point of Hammer are their visuals and some of these set yes. pieces. They their are sets in themselves and then the set pieces they put within these sets. And I know Lee Christopher Lee here is playing this kind of like wide, wise sage type character. And like we said, he's got this striking look about him. He's just this mm-hmm. imposing count. And yeah, now well, to, he's
1: just on. an imposing figure, period, even when he's yeah. in a bad movie. Yeah, I mean, even like one of my least favorite James Bond movies is The Man with the Golden Gun. I just don't think it's a very good movie, but he's great in it. And or even one of my favorite, so bad it's good movies, uh, Howling Two. Your sister is aware <laughs> 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 where Christopher yeah. Lee is in it, and he he's he's great at it. I mean, he's great in everything. I don't. I mean, Trey, what can you name a bad Christopher Lee performance? No, I don't think so. I mean, even when he
0: refuses to speak any lines, he's still good as an imposing figure in the background. So,
1: yeah, exactly. He was just a great actor. I think that was, you know, Hammer. Of course, luck is a factor in anything in the entertainment industry. I mean, it it, it always is. Um, No one, you know, the old line is no one seeks to make a bad movie Sometimes you get actors in a bad mood or whatever, and and you you just have bad chemistry. But think of the luck Hammer had by landing on Cushing and and Christopher Lee.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you get two guys that can just play off of each other, and both would go on to be in – well, I mean, I guess both of them were in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. But both of them would go I think on, Cushing
1: got the better deal out of that one. Well, but
0: yeah, yeah but. I was just... That kind of just kicked in my head, like, yeah. yeah, I've seen... That's a bad movie maybe Christopher Lee is in, but he is not yeah. bad in it, per se. No, <laughs> he's not. Um, but then Lee would go on later in the early autumn, being one of maybe the most successful fantasy franchises of all the time as yep. in the Lord of the Rings movies, so... Right.
1: But they just... I mean, they landed on two actors who... Not only were great and were willing to do genre films, as both Cushing and Lee did, you know, until they died, but also were great friends and you can see the chemistry between them. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I mean, count I don't know, I don't have the total number of roles they were in together, but they had to be in... Probably a majority of the Hammer films right together, or at least the yeah. horror offerings together or one one or the other. There are a couple that I know that one or the other were in.
1: But I yeah, their chemistry is great. Everything you say, I you said it very well. Well, it was just like um, they did a 1972 picture. I think it was a, for AIP called mm-hmm. Horror Express, which yes. is yep. which is kind of a um, it, would you agree? Kind of a twist on the thing from another world. I mean, that's kind of yes. what it is. Yep. And, you know, Peter Cushing's wife had just passed away. And Peter Cushing, unlike, you know, most actors, was, you know, just madly in love with his wife and was very devoted. And when she died, he considered just retiring. You know, he considered getting out. And it was Christopher Lee who went to him and said, no, you know, Peter, you've got to stay busy. You need to come do this with me. Let's let's go be together. Let's hang out. We're friends. Let's go. Let's go do this movie. And it was Christopher Lee who talked to Peter Cushing into continuing to act. You know, we never would have had him in Star Wars if yeah. it had been for Christopher Lee going to him for Horror Express, of all things, and going, no, you you, you got to keep going. And and he did, you know, well into the, you know, in the 80s, as far as I remember. Yeah. And you make a good point there. And
0: yeah, there are usually plain adversaries, but they're such great friends in, in real life. And I can't think of, there's not that many actors that I would want to sit down with for just hours and listen to them talk mm-hmm. about their experiences. And those two, I think I could. You know, some, so many seem like they're just so full of their own BS yes. that you you have to cut through it. But I think that Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing just seem
1: like genuine people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. and And despite the fact that now, I know some people have questioned this, but other people say, no, Christopher Lee, according to some sources, was a true World War Two hero, like a commando going behind like enemy lines really during World War Two. And yeah, when he shot the Howling Two, he received like a hero's welcome because he had the reputation as a guy who parachuted behind enemy lines to kill Nazis. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing, and that just makes me respect him even
0: more. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, some people have questioned that and said, "Ah, no, he's <laughs> kind of he kind of he kind of overhyped that." But it's one of those things where I've heard podcasters go, "Ah, he overhyped that." It's like, okay, you parachute behind enemy lines, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> and take out Nazis, which nobody disputes he did, and it's like, wow. I mean, the guy was an authentic hero. So I. Yeah, I I completely respect him, but he also had a reputation just as Christopher Lee, I'm talking about, as just being very kind to people on set, which is rare for an actor of that stature. And in fact, there were times where both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, from what I read, they were offered scripts from Hammer and... One or the other would say, no. And and the executives like, well, we're not going to make it without the both of you. And so one would go the other and go, OK, we know the crew. They need a paycheck. Let's go do it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. And yeah, going back to
0: what you said. Yeah, if you're parachuting behind enemy lines in World War Two or any conflict. Yeah, I don't I don't care how many or what your accolades are. You're you've already earned my respect there. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's some great bit of trivia there, Matt. I really, uh, I really appreciate that, that they're kind of their staff. And I think it was seen, as we t- talked about earlier, that it was a family-run production company. It seems like mm-hmm. it was more of a family. You'd probably have a lot of the crew and cast
1: working together in these films. Yeah, I don't think that you have anything like that until... You... Yeah, I mean, well, maybe Corman in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but even Corman, you know, he had that... Motto that if you make two good films for me, you never have to work for me again, (laughs) Uh, which was true for Joe Dante and so many others. But I think that uh, you have to get to kind of Blumhouse Mm -hmm. to get kind of something comparative because you've got Jason Blum and Ryan Turek and, you know, those guys and they're pumping out movies, you know, again and again before you kind of see that kind of camaraderie. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that's really cool. And, you know, so you've got Cushing and Lee were really good friends in real life. They were good to the crew. You know, I've said this. Yes, there are troubled productions that can make good movies. You know, Casablanca was famously a mess that ended up being a great movie. But those are rare. I've been on enough film sets to know that if the cast and crew are getting along and they genuinely like each other, you're going to get a better movie. And I think Hammer showed that because even if you get to lesser movies, the lesser, you know, Dracula movies or, you know, whatever, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, or, you know, what, whatever, <laughs> where they said, like, hey, Kung Fu is big with the kid. Yeah. You know, it still kind of works. And I think it kind of works because the, the cast and crew just got along so well.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the problem with that, Pastor Matt, is that if that came out maybe 10 years later, that might be
1: a pretty big cult film hit. The uh, Well, yeah. I mean, that's basically part. what John Carpenter was kind of doing, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It, it, well, well, we could also say the same thing about Captain Kronos. I mean, that was oh, yeah. if that had been made 10 years earlier, it would have been a huge box office hit.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love Captain Cronos. Um, I don't care if it's got all the swashbuckling cheesiness in it. I love that movie. I do, too. But, uh, you know, if it had been in the 60s instead of the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, it
1: would have been a hit.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we get to that point where they're just kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks almost in the (laughs) 70s. But even I think I actually like a lot of their output of the 70s. It's very weird. A lot of the films and they're not maybe the same magic and the same um, feeling of those earlier films. But I like that they're not afraid to take risk and to go off in different directions.
1: Yeah, which which they did. I mean, like I alluded to earlier, Vampire Circus has a lot of nudity. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing it on WSAZ out of Cleveland when I was a kid, and they obviously cut a lot out of it. And I thought, oh, it's a pretty tame vampire film, but I enjoyed it. (laughs) I, I liked it. And then when I started to go like year by year and post- Movie reviews on Letterboxd and put together a top ten, all kind of stuff. And I started originally with 1972 because that's the year I was born. And so I rewatched Vampire Circus, and I could only find it at that time on YouTube, and it was an uncut version. And I watched. It. I was like, this is not the version I remember from WSAC. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of nudity and there's a lot of stuff in here I don't remember. But it it still works. But that was pretty gutsy in 1972.
0: Yeah, and I think they I think they had to. Um, if we want to jump into that a little bit, I mean, they were having some serious struggles and some serious, mainly because of competition, right? Um, you've got not only the American market who are starting to put out these giant indie films that are just completely brutal. Um, you've got the European scene elsewhere in Europe where they're starting to put out these more risque kind of films and they're going into... The kind of European sleaze that we would get from that time, whether it's mm-hmm. Giallo or whatever. So I think they're trying to up, kind of anti up the uh, the sexual element of these films to make them sell and to try to get back on top.
1: Yeah, like, you got guys like Mario Bava and stuff throwing stuff out there. But you also have like, you know, I, I argue all the time and not just because it's my favorite movie of all time. that Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960 kind of changed everything. Mm hmm yep uh, um you know it was so for that day risque yes i mean yep. it, it you know it it, it really kind of changed everything and you know i know you had peeping tom come out before it, but that wasn't even a hit so you no. know yeah it was a great movie but it wasn't a hit and, yes yep. and it kind of ruined mike and michael powell's career actually um but you know you do have you're right trey like You've got Bava doing his thing and all of the kind of stuff. You've got all this stuff coming out in the 60s, which is pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. But I'll give credit to Hammer. I mean, maybe I shouldn't give credit <laughs> to them. I mean, they, in the hashtag Me Too movement, maybe I shouldn't give credit to them because they are pushing sexuality. And you're right. They're also pushing, you know, the red blood and all that, which hadn't been seen before. no. Um, yeah, that, that was brand new. But, you know, like I said, they've got Ingrid Pitt and later they have Carolyn Monroe and, you know, and and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. um, but they are pushing the envelope a little, little by little. But then in the late 60s, they start to like they're still pushing the envelope, but not as much as others. And they start to lose their edge.
0: Yeah. When we're talking about this whole like I've seen it. Coined as like the Karnstein trilogy when we're talking about Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, and right. um, Twins of Evil, which Twins of Evil was another one of my top Hammer films. I would oh,
1: say. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, but there Evil.
0: were a pair of Playboy Playmates starring in that, correct? Right. Bl- yeah. Yeah. You're getting the stuff from um, Daughters of Darkness. I don't know if you're familiar with the. I uh, am. Yeah. The Belgian film, film. Yep. and that's pushing the the limits. But you've got that going the same time and, as we're kind and of pushing vampire, back and forth.
1: And, and I mean you. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, you get not not far after that. You get Andy Warhol's Dracula and Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which are bizarre. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you get those come out and Count Yorga was, you know, originally intended to be a softcore porn film.
0: Yeah, I remember. I think that was a uh, was that a uh, Bill Van Vegel talking about that? Maybe on an L- episode of L O T C or something, I heard
1: that? Uh, I think so, yeah. But it was I you know, I I watched those I just remember watching those movies and then going online and looking at them and I think it was it was originally supposed to be softcore and then the one of the producers kind of or one of the actors kind of pulled the trigger and said, No, nah, I'm not gonna do that. And so they they just decided to make it a drive-in movie. But Hammer, you know, that's the weird thing, is that you you can push the envelope and then within 5 years be behind the envelope which is what happened to Hammer. I mean, yep. they were still trying to push vampire movies, mummy movies, you know, they did the, didn't Hammer do Plague of the Zombies as well, I believe? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, they're doing these things but then within within just a couple of years they're behind the bar. They're behind what Wes Craven is doing and what George Romero is doing and stuff, right? I mean, they're yeah. not they're not catching up. They're not having the box office success they had in the late 50s into the mid 60s. No, and I mean,
0: Gothic was, you can only do something so long before a trend kind of ends. And Gothic was on its way out the door. I mean, there was that great run of Italian Gothic films that probably ended around 65, 66. And then they were like, onto giallos and they're never looked back so and even that didn't last very long so it's like you're chasing these constant trends and you either probably have to make the decision of well do we change direction or do we try to make these timeless movies that aren't chasing a fad that kind of hold their own for the test of time and i don't i don't know what the right direction for hammer would have been here but it's clear they kind of held on to gothic maybe a little too long because plague of the zombies was 66 67 and that still had some gothic trappings for sure it was set in the that time period
1: for sure anyway well um, almost i mean tell me if you disagree with this i mean do any of the hammer films from the 50s and 60s not have some gothic you know kind of tropes to them the, so i saw one and i
0: okay I don't know when it's set. It's kind of hard to see when it's set, but it's called Taste of Fear or Scream of Fear. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, it sounds familiar, but no, I can't recall it. It has Christopher Lee in a smaller role in it, but it's one of their offshoots. It's much more of like this mystery, mystery film thriller type thing other than like a straight-up horror movie. It was early 60s, um, okay. and it has like a gothic, like a hint of gothic to it it's got this like sensibilities but it's definitely mm-hmm. more of a modern day film it's got cars it's got and i think it's cars of the time
1: period too it's not
0: like the older cars right so that's the one i can think of off the top of my head well was, like, but even film. like
1: like the devil's ride, you know the devil rides out is kind of set in contemporary times for its time you know but at the same time there's still castles you know what i mean there's yeah. still they still kind of play all that into that, and it was like going back, and maybe it's just the fanboy in me. I just think Psycho changed a lot of that.
0: No, I don't think you're wrong. Um, there were certainly things, and I had talked about a little bit of Val Luton maybe getting a little bit of influence on Hitchcock there. But I mean Hitchcock has been around since the
1: the 20s making films. Right. But, but he certainly saw Val Luton's movies. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. That. and and i'm I'm a huge fan of the podcast you did on that. I'm so glad you shed light on that because I think Faluin is underrated as oh, a filmmaker and you know I mean show me a scene before the 1950s that is as terrifying as that scene where the daughter's outside the door and the leopard man. Oh man yeah
0: yeah that gets you doesn't it and <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, and Luton is such uh, his films are so strong, even the ones I'm not a huge fan of. I still enjoyed. Yeah,
1: well, and, even like Curse of the Cat People is like it's more of a fantasy, mm-hmm. but it's still a really well-made film. Yeah, it's a good film and the cast is great. And
0: yeah. I I think he does. He did a lot of he was pushing the boundaries right without. Necessarily, I don't think he showed really blood in a film until like Isle of the Dead, which was later in his career, but he was still pushing the boundaries of this tension in the terrifying scene. So I'm sure Hitchcock saw that, but Hitchcock kind of amplified it across the entire nation.
1: Yeah, he put and out Psycho. It, it, yeah, the kind of mythos is that, you know, Hitchcock was jealous of what Corman was doing and he was going to try to replicate it. Maybe that's true, but... You know, having read so many biographies on on Hitchcock, Psycho just seems like <laughs> even more than North by Northwest or or the man who knew too much or Vertigo. Well, maybe Vertigo. Um, and it <laughs> seems much more within Hitchcock's psyche. I mean, he just yeah. he was a dark individual. Mm-hmm. And and so I think when Hitchcock, you know, when he put his money where his mouth was to do psycho i just think it changed so much and i and change always takes time you know you have to look back like at least 10 years to see where the zeitgeist has kind of changed but i think that what hitchcock did with psycho was slowly change the atmosphere of film and especially thrillers or horror movies mm-hmm. so that by the time hammer is in the late 60s early 70s and they're still doing vampire movies and frankenstein movies it's like because of psycho in my opinion the, the populace had moved on to more realistic horror yeah and 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 and, and i just don't think they caught up with that if Hammer had gone, you know, said, OK, we need to do a serial killer movie. We need to do like what Hitchcock would do with Frenzy. We need to do something <laughs> like that. Yeah. I think they could have remained financially viable because, yeah. you know, you look at like the 70s, yeah, there were a lot of vampire movies, a lot of vampire mm-hmm. movies. But how many were really successful? Yeah, not there's.
0: I don't know if there's that many classics from the 70s.
1: No, I mean John Badham's Maybe Salem's Lot. from '79. Yeah, was successful. Yeah, Salem's Lot was successful. Of course, that was you know began as a TV miniseries, mm-hmm. and that even that was a little bit of a different take for the 70s, right? Because most yep. people weren't that you know uh, most people in the 70s hadn't seen Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, And so they weren't familiar with the feral vampire and all that kind of stuff. And you and you've also got James Mason and you've got, you know, you've got David Saul from Starsky and Hutch, which is big hit at the time. You got all that kind of stuff. But they're not there are a lot of vampire movies in the 70s, but there are not that many successful vampire movies in the 70s. And so Hammer was just falling behind. I mean, they just in the 50s and I would argue into the very early 60s they were ahead of the curve and then they just kind of fell off they kind of became a slave to their formula which will kill you in entertainment eventually
0: yep absolutely and i gotta i gotta echo what you were saying about hitchcock and i know um dr shock and i had talked about on our episode about hitchcock trying to go get some book rights to these french authors who would eventually sell their rights to make the film eyes without a face Mm -hmm. um So Hitchcock's kind of take and that's an unflinching movie, too. And I think Hitchcock's kind of seen that and the authors, at least I don't know if he saw the film, but he's liking those authors and their true to life kind of horrors. And he's taking that. And just like I had said, do we get um, Halloween or Black
1: Christmas without the
0: Giallo? Do we get the Giallo without Psycho?
1: And I agree. I don't think we do. I, I think that's the DNA, right? I, I think that's how it follows. And I mean, yeah, you can go back to say, well, there was M, you know, there was that kind of stuff. There was, you know, you can go back. But yeah, but none of those films made the cultural impact that Psycho did. And yeah. that really hit home. And I don't I just don't think that the family, as you said, rightly, had Hammer, got that. And it's true there were a lot of pale comparisons that didn't do, you know, exceptionally well, the Sadist and Straight Jacket, you know, and all the <laughs> yeah. other kind of stuff. You've got those films that really tried to replicate it but couldn't. And so there were a lot of people like, well, but that's because it's Hitchcock. But Hitchcock just changed the game. I mean, it, it just it, it turned. And you get to the 70s and I know there's The Exorcist. I know there's The Omen. I, I get that. But in the 70s, what is the recurring theme in really popular horror movies? It's realism. It's mm-hmm. Jaws. It's you can argue this is realism, but they're, you know, based on real events from the medieval ages, the hills have eyes. Um it's it's that kind of thing. It's the Amityville horror, which was supposedly based on true events. It's that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. In the seventies, you get, you know, much more horror is based in realism. It's it's going into the unknown. It's the yeah. stranger. It's it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? It's it's that kind of stuff. And Hammer just didn't keep up with it. Yep. Yep. And definitely
0: I and I think the seventies were a much I think it's a product of the time, right? And the 70s were a much um, more somber time for – the late 60s, 70s were a much more somber time for the
1: U.S. than maybe – Oh, sure. I mean, you got Vietnam and Watergate and, and yeah. so forth. So you have all this stuff happening. You've got hyperinflation. You've got gas yep. lines. You've got all that kind of stuff. And so you have all this stuff happening, but it was really the fear of the known unknown, if that makes sense. Yep. yep. And – you know, and Hammer just didn't keep up with that. But to give Hammer its due, I mean, going back and rewatching, and and Shout Factory has, you know, re-released a lot of this stuff. And by the way, I don't have a sponsorship from Shout Factory, but <laughs> I would take one to help put my son through college. Um When I go back and I look at the Hammer films of the 60s and The Devil Rides Out is a favorite, but also looking at Brides of Dracula Mm -hmm. or looking at The Curse of the Werewolf, which is a movie that (laughs) makes zero sense. Oh, my. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, we we did a thing. Jackson and I did a thing on Retro Movie Geek uh, last year. Where we called in during the pandemic and did a mini review of Curse of the Werewolf. It was yep, like,
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah, if you want to see a, a werewolf at a, after a 10 martini lunch, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> Oliver Reed was such a notorious drinker. It, it, the movie makes no sense, but my gosh, here's one thing I have to say about all Hammer horror films it looks beautiful. Yep. I mean, those films look gorgeous for, you know, whether it was Terrence Fisher or Freddie Francis or whoever was the director, those films look amazing. Uh, right down
0: from the the sets to the costuming, to everything, um, to those bright colors of those early on, it just has its own kind of distinct look. And you can kind of tell that from Europe in general, right, is a lot of European films, which have. Of course, a lot of European films at the same time Hammer was doing color were still in black and white. But when you move into that Technicolor, it kind of pops off the screen and it kind of adds another layer. But I think, like we were talking about before, the atmosphere in those Hammer films is just palpable. And even in that Taste of Fear I was talking about, now that you're saying it, I think it was set in this like big old mansion. Mm -hmm. And you always get that kind of stuff there. So yes, absolutely agree.
1: Yeah. they. Oh, man. You you have to give credit where, you know, credit is deserved. And with Hammer, the production design was always on point. Makeup was always great for the time. Cinematography was amazing. I mean, these were still low budget films, but they looked amazing. And, you know, you can't compare anything to them, honestly. I mean, other than maybe Hitchcock, if you're looking at most films from the 50s or 60s, horror films, you're looking at genre films and you're comparing them to Hammer. I mean, if you're going to compare who you're going to take. Yeah,
0: no, I absolutely agree. And I think it's again, it's a style all of its own. You can compare it to anything, but there's nothing quite like a Hammer film, I would say.
1: Especially. No. And even with some of the special effects for the day, I understand yeah. for the day. Uh, go to the horror of Dracula, mm-hmm. you know, and where uh, Peter Cushing grabs a curtain and Christopher Lee's leg dissolves. It yeah. looks great.
0: And you know what? Even um, some of the weirder now we're talking weird. Um, Dracula, AD nineteen seventy two. Yeah, the which effect, does
1: at least feature Carolyn Monroe. Yes,
0: <laughs> that it. You know what? That one. Kind of won me over by the end, but that is a weird movie. It's Um, a weird movie, yeah. But the death of Dracula in that is so spectacular, and I love it. It's like he's almost dissolving away, and just so, and it's just this, it just doesn't cut away, and it shows you kind of this violent, like changing from flesh to bone, and it's that was very good in that. So the effects are always kind of on top there, I think.
1: Yeah, and I'm embarrassed. I don't know who did most of the effects. Um, for those movies no. off the top of my head. But man, oh man, were they good. For, yeah. You know, again for the day, and I you know, I, I've said this again and again on my own podcast. I don't mean to belabor it, but um you look at a lot of films, especially from the eighties, you take slashers from the eighties, which we both love, right? hmm Yep. They're almost better seen on VHS than they are Blu-ray. Yeah,
0: yep you can see the uh, Kevin Bacon scene there in Friday the 13th kind of come apart yeah, the higher uh, the definition w-
1: gets. Yeah, exactly. But you know, with those films, they still feel kind of charming. I mean, yeah. they, they don't, you know, I don't think they're dated. I think that they still look fairly good, uh, mm-hmm. even on Blu-ray. Cause I have some of those from shout factory on Blu-ray and I'm like, yeah, of course, you can see that it's kind of, you know, stop motion. Okay, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But I think it looks better than some of the practical effects. And all right, listeners, forgive me, than some of Tom Savini's effects in the 80s. <laughs> uh, and I don't want to say anything bad about Tom Savini, but
0: no, I, th- I don't either. And th- maybe, Matt, tell me if you um, think this is maybe fair or not. When we get into those slashers and we're looking at them, Maybe how much of this is the element of in the Hammer films, we do have this maybe a family and they're kind of they all know each other and they want to put their all into this craft. I'm not saying they do all the time, but I think that might be the prevailing thing here is some of those slashers were cash grabs. We love them. We still watch them. You could tell that they weren't putting the the time and the attention into those movies as maybe something like a Hammer would be. Oh,
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they're. Oh, man, I hate to slag any slasher from the 80s because it's such C&D. But, yeah, there there was a period where a lot of filmmakers were like, well, let's go do a slasher because that will get me an agent and maybe a DGA card. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You know, they weren't they they didn't like the genre or anything like that. And so that certainly existed. But with Hammer, I never got the sense. Maybe I'm wrong. And and maybe you have done some research, you know, better. I don't think Terrence Fisher or Freddie Francis or any of those guys ever felt like they were, you know, working below their station.
0: No, I don't think so. And I don't know them in particular, but I know I did see an interview with Jimmy Sangster, who did a lot of writing for Hammer or for Hammer and would go on to direct some stuff later. I think he directed maybe some of the not so good stuff, but it seemed like he was, he still wanted to be there because, you know, they would ask him like to come in and write for a film. And he was like, well, can I direct it too? And there was this story where they were like, okay, well, let me get back to you in about 30 minutes or so. And they went and called someone Mm -hmm. and came back and were like, yeah, you can come on and direct it. So, yeah, I think, I think there's a sense of that.
1: Definitely Matt. Yeah. I just, you know, I tweeted out a couple of months ago. I said, you know, one of the, Problems with Friday Thirteenth, the the franchise, Mm -hmm. which you know Jackson and I did a a review of the entire franchise. I said, but you know, part of the problem was they had these people coming in who were just they were just trying to get their DGA card. They didn't they didn't give a crap about the movie. They didn't give a crap about the continuity. They didn't you know they could care less. Or the screenwriter was trying to get his SGA card, whatever. And and so I tweeted out. I said, you know what I want? I want somebody who's a fan to be a showrunner to do like Friday 13th on Netflix or Mm -hmm. Amazon prime or whatever.
0: Yeah. Kind of like an over series
1: that came out. Right. I haven't
0: seen it yet, but I hear great things from that when Don Mancini was back in charge of that.
1: Exactly. And I said, the person I wanted to do it, I said, you know, um, you know, the guy who did the Hannibal series, which I think is amazing still. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I want him to. And I tweeted and he tweeted me back and said, I would like that. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, I didn't expect that. But, you know, I want that. But one of the things. So let's if we can, if you don't mind, if you compare Universal to Hammer. Mm -hmm. When you watch the Universal films, which I love, Mm -hmm. they're all over the place. Yes. Yeah, especially once you get past the originals in a series. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, how many times is Lon Chaney as the Wolfman? You know, he's dead, then he's alive. (laughs) His father's British, you know. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I've got a
0: lot of trouble getting past the originals on those Universal films, Matt. Like, I love the originals, and then I go watch some of the sequels, and I'm like, ah,
1: yeah. So I'm with you there. Yeah, and it's – but – with the Hammer films, and I'm repeating myself a bit, but I mean, there's a little more continuity there.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate that. I appreciate any time yeah. that you take your viewer into account when you're thinking of these things and you're like, I think there's a scene. We talked about Dracula AD 1972 earlier, and there yeah. is a scene that sets it up that is set. And I I can't remember which one comes before it. I don't know if it's the Satanic Rites of Dracula or not. Um, and I don't know if this scene is from that, but it sets up this. I think it's the great grandfather of our main character and is showing back in the Gothic era and shows him, you know, trapping Dracula. And then we fast forward to present day. So even there, even if that's not from the movie before it, you're still setting up kind of a continuity and – Things like that. Right, I don't know and, that. And this
1: is long before the days of showrunners who were looking over continuity and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, this is before Internet. This is before, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I always appreciated that about Hammer films. Yeah, look at the Michael Myers mask throughout the film. Oh, good Lord. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> Just for an example. And uh, I don't think you would think something's that disconnected on any of the Hammer films from one to the other. And I've always complained. How can you
1: not recreate that? Uh. I don't know. It's. I it's, mean, <laughs> it, come on. If you have professional makeup effects artists, how can you not recreate that? But with Hammer, you know, God bless him and keep him. Okay, Christopher Lee is Dracula. You know, for most of the movies, and we're just gonna. Here's where we're gonna go, and we just got to put fangs on him, and and the red contact lenses, which by the way, were very painful.
0: Oh, I um, can imagine.
1: Yeah. They look yeah, great, like,
0: but very painful.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they're doing that stuff. And with the Frankenstein movies, here's where we ended. So here's where we're going to begin with the Dracula movies. They do that largely as well. Um, It's like, you know, here's where I lose respect for a horror franchise where they pick up and they completely ignore the previous episode where it ended. You know, I don't mean to sound like Kathy Bates in Misery, okay? He didn't get out of the cocky (laughs) duty car. But when they do pay respect to that, when they do go back and they figure out a way to go back to that ending and and do it justice, to me, that shows respect. Yeah, no, I I 100
0: percent that infuriates me when we go and even when and I know it happens because we can't get the same um actor in there but when we lose a character and they just replace them with someone else and just don't say anything about it um and then another extreme matt i told you i'd been watching some older films i was working my way re-watching through the um old planet of the apes movies mm. and with planet of the apes and beneath the planet of the apes that's the opposite effect where you know charlton heston didn't want to come back for as much so they spend the first half of that movie Basically putting a new character in the same exact situations that Heston went through for the most part. Oh man! So there's two extremes there, but I hate when they do something like that. I'm with you. I I, I do too. I
1: mean, it's just you know, I, as a horror fan, show some respect for the horror fans. Yeah. And, and and just you know, go back to the last film. It's it, so many horror films I watch, especially sequels. It's just like you didn't even watch the last one. Yeah. And and, and, come on. And, you know, just, you know, show some respect and go back and try to make sense of it and so forth. And that's what I really respect about Hammer, especially in the 60s.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so you said you've seen um, Plague of the Zombies, right? Yeah. A long time ago. But yeah. 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 I love their take on that when you're mentioning kind of coming off of what we're talking about here. But they have this. It's almost like this voodoo zombie. Like, it's like the Haitian voodoo zombie. Right. As opposed to the thing that would come out with Night of the Living Dead where we've got more of... I guess we don't get really any explanation for that, but it's much more seen as like a a viral thing, I guess, than anything going on with this. Right. But you just get... It just feels like when you're watching one Hammer film to the next... Even if they're not related in the same series, you just get some of the same themes and the same settings and things carried over. Especially here, there's this mill or it's a mine or something, and it's a really cool setting. It's kind of got that gothic, but not kind of gothic. It's kind of out in the country. So, But right. even between films that aren't related, I think you're seeing things pulled over from other
1: films, if that makes sense. No, I do. Yeah, I, I, I think they did a very good job at that. I, I would be shocked. I don't know. But I would be shocked if like Terrence Fisher and Freddie Francis and all those guys weren't friends who communicated with each other Mm -hmm. um, and talked to each other about each other's films, because I think they all really work well. I I think they work. uh, I know I'm going to get grief about this. (laughs) I think they work better together than the Universal films do. You know, I kind of alluded to that before, but during this last spooky season. I have the Universal movie box set, and I kind of work through, again, all the Invisible Man movies, all the Mummy movies, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I enjoy them, but they're a mess.
0: Yes. Yep. Uh, you don't have to convince me on that. Like I said, I've I've had so much trouble with the sequels in those films. And yeah, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, there's been some stuff like Curse of the Werewolf. Um, or things like that that I popped on from Hammer. Well, I,
1: good lord, She Wolf of yeah. London is just <laughs> not, not awful. But um, what, even with Curse of the Werewolf, even though that movie doesn't make sense to me, I always appreciated it. It just huh, how do I say this? It appeared to me that Hammer really invested in it. Yes. Yes. And that's that's what
0: I think I was trying to get across is I don't think there are some universal films that I despise and I don't think there's been one of those. And I have not scraped the bottom of the barrel with Hammer, for sure. I'm sure there's a bottom. But from what I've seen, if even if it's like boring and not catching my attention, there are still elements of it that I really appreciate and
1: really like. Yeah, agreed. I I just yeah. And I haven't seen every hammer horror film I I, you know I I've probably seen 90 percent of them but I haven't Mm -hmm. seen all of them but everything looked glorious everything you know yeah at times there's overacting and that kind of stuff but you also get that in AIP films and you know Corman films I, I mean you get that from this kind of genre but I just as a former aspiring filmmaker who always appreciated visuals because, you know, filmmaking is a, well, it's a visual genre, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I always appreciated it. And I didn't always get this from universal films that it just looked beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't use that term lightly. I think it looks beautiful and yeah, they stumbled, they were lucky enough to stumble across Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing mm-hmm. Who were amazing in everything they were in, whether together or or separate. But there was also Ralph Bates, right? I mean, there was there were all kinds of actors that Michael Gow, mm-hmm. who yes. would later be right, would later be um, Alfred, right? Alfred, that's right. Yep. In, in, yeah, in Batman, just they had a real eye for talent.
0: Yeah, and I think you've got a lot of talent going around in the. England scene at that time, right? Even if it's not in these films, you know, you get something later with actors coming up like um, Donald Pleasance. Right, and right. you've got actors like Alec Guinness and just this wealth of kind of British actors around this time. I think this is a boom for the Britain film industry in these couple, few decades.
1: Here. Yeah, I agree. And also I have to mention from Dracula AD 1972, Stephanie Beecham, uh, <laughs> yeah. who I had a crush on. And I got to meet and got to know. Yeah. Stephanie Beecham starred in a sitcom called Sister Kate on NBC from 1989 to 1990. And my brother wrote the uh, theme song for it. Oh, wow. So we used to go to the tapings every week and I got to know Stephanie. And when it was canceled, when uh, the producer, Patricia Rickey, told us that um, the series had been canceled. Stephanie went around and and told everyone goodbye. And I took her hand and kissed her hand. <laughs> and uh. she looked at me and said, oh, a gentleman. <laughs> and I could have gone to heaven right then. Oh, I, I, I. Oh, my gosh. I was so in love with her. Um, but yeah, it, it's they really had an eye for talent. I mean, even Oliver Reed, who was yes, he was a noted drunkard. Um, you know, but he does a great job in The Curse of the Werewolf. I mean, Curse of the Werewolf makes no sense. No. But Oliver Reed is great in it. Yeah, he's a great
0: classical actor, I think. Yeah, um, And you also, and they weren't able to keep her in London, and that was their own fault. But you get Barbara Steele that comes out of the yeah. scene the same time as well. And I just did an episode on her a couple weeks ago. Uh, recorded
1: it at least. Oh, yeah, it's just amazing all around if you look at the people who came out of Hammer in the 50s and 60s. I mean, yeah, they produced a lot of a lot of people who went on to great Hollywood careers and not just Cushing and
0: Lee. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's like you were saying, the cast is never a problem. Like, I don't think the acting's usually that problem. In some of their weirder films, maybe you get some more eccentric yeah. acting going on. But I think the casting and the actors themselves are solid for the most part, across the board.
1: Yeah, you you do get, well, but what studio is not going to have some actor who's kind of out there? Um, yeah, yeah. Especially a low-budget, you know, kind of thing like Hammer was doing, but... Let's compare just for a second. I mean, if you compare Hammer to Blumhouse, I think Hammer comes out on top as far as absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think
0: it's still early on. And I found Blumhouse fascinating as well. I'd like to do an episode on that down the road when we get a little bit uh, deeper into their, you know, their films and things. But
1: yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. I am a fan of Blumhouse. However, I've had (laughs) I've had some. Oh, how should we call it? Well, I've had some clashes with Ron with Ryan Turek online just because I it started with I told him that he gives too much away in his trailers. (laughs) Let's go back. Let's go back to Halloween 2018. Uh, It's
0: true. And it's true. Right. Um, And I always find myself trying to get to the theater as close as I can to the you know wait like 10 minutes 15 minutes after the movie's supposed to start and I try to like hide my eyes if I can (laughs) and cover my ears
1: if I'm seeing these trailers yeah Uh, I do too I just went to Ghostbusters Afterlife last night with my with my wife and yeah I like stood outside for the first 10 minutes Um, oh yeah but that being said um, let me give full cred to Blumhouse I think generally speaking Not only have they been good in casting people, I think they've been fairly brave in it. You could go back to the Dimension Film 90s model of we're just going to cast CW, (laughs) right, right, good looking, like, here's what we're going to do. It's who's ever on, you know, the making TMZ this week. That's who we're going to put on. And Blumhouse largely hasn't done that. So I'm, you know, I'm I'll praise them for that. But with Hammer, they didn't just put pretty people in their movies. Carolyn Monroe could act. Ingrid yep. Pitt could act.
0: Absolutely. No, and there's something to be said for that. Right. And especially like you were mentioning that late 90s, early aughts, you're just putting yeah. you know, good looking. And we didn't have that in the 80s. We didn't have that in the and 70s. No. It wasn't just throwing a good-looking body in there in the film. It was more about, you know, the character. No, it
1: was in the
0: the 80s. It was, are you willing to get naked? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You got a job. You probably have 10 jobs lined up. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. No, but I I can't disagree with you there. Let's pivot a little bit here, Matt. Are there any, what are some of your favorite Hammer films? Are there any films you want to kind of talk about a little in depth here?
1: Well, first of all, I do think I've mentioned this earlier. I think Vampire Circus is underrated. Yeah. Um, And I think it's underseen. You know, Hammer was struggling at the time. But I think Vampire Circus is a really strong film. Yeah. And I, to your point, I didn't see that until it popped up on Shudder.
0: What was that, like a year ago or a year and a half ago or something? That was the first time I had seen that and Twins of Evil, actually. And and Twins of Evil is an underrated film. Yeah. And I agree with you on Vampire Circus. I really like that. It's not one of my favorites, but I do think it's a really good movie. And then we had something I mentioned Twins of Evil and there was that whole thing they called the um, Karnstein trilogy. Have you seen um, The Vampire Lovers
1: or Lust for a Vampire? You know what? Jackson actually bought me that. (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, he actually bought me that. Um, Yeah. And it is very good. Yeah.
0: No, I agree. Yeah. And I, I think Lust for a Vampire gets a little weird, but I I was watching that earlier. A little week. weird. Uh, it gets really weird. And yeah. there's these like POV segments until you find out who like the vampire is in this movie. And uh, but there's this I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but there's this weird scene with this um, song playing. And it's talking about it's a pretty haunting song, but it's talking about like strange love or something like that. While oh. all these two people are making. Love, I, yeah, it's I think I so do. weird. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I kind of I kind of like that weirdness. Yeah, I just like I said, I kind of embrace the Captain Kronos and the those films that came out in the 70s and kind of their weirdness. And I've kind of gained a new respect And that started with Vampire Circus and Twins of Evil.
1: I think that's when they tried to be more edgy. I think it was a little too late. Yeah. And, and you know, that was, I think, the downfall of Hammer originally, even though we should mention they have reemerged.
0: Yes, and we will. And you know what? Let's go ahead. Let's. We've been dancing around this kind of downfall. You want to mm-hmm. get into some of the facts around this and what kind of the timeline was? Yeah, uh, go for it. Yeah. Yep. So, I and we've touched on a lot of this stuff, but by the mid-60s, Hammer had some new major competition. We talked about the new wave of American films mm-hmm. that were becoming more violent and gruesome. Right. Um, and then you have AIP, which rises up in the 60s and is picking right. up films from all over the place. They do the Poe cycle with um, Corman. and right. They would release. They'd be responsible for Witchfinder General too, which would kick off that folk horror in England as well, and that would lead into you know Blood on Satan's Claw and the the Wicker Man. And that was done. Witchfinder General was done by the UK company Tigon. I think is how I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's T I G O N. And that was like a new competitor there with that stuff. And then you get Amicus, who's coming right. in and doing their EC comic style inspired
1: anthologies. Right.
0: So they're not the only game in town anymore at this point.
1: Yeah, they weren't. I mean, you had Tales from the Crypt come out. You had, you know, and at that point, according to what I've read, I mean, if you were doing horror movies, you were really competing for drive-ins or like almost kind of seedy theaters.
0: Yeah. The whole landscape had changed, right, from what we had in the 50s and 60s with sci-fi American
1: films that were trying to be spectacles. Yeah, I've heard so many interviews where people were like, yeah, I I saw Psycho at the drive-in with my parents. Well, that wasn't happening anymore. And so you had, you know, if you grew up where I grew up in southern Ohio, well, unless you went to the drive-in, you weren't seeing these movies. No, that makes sense. You you talking as far as like they're not anywhere else but the drive. Uh, well, yeah, no, they're not anywhere
0: but the drive-ins. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and we're still. I don't know if you have any down your way, Matt, but we're still lucky enough to have one a little bit outside of Columbus here, um, in Lancaster, Ohio, um, that my parents always took me to growing up. But it's just a one screener. But
1: I actually tried to start my own. Oh, did you? I did. I tried. The problem was audio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, You can't because we have a hospital and a hospice right next to us. Mm -hmm. Um, They have all the channels.
0: Ah, yeah. Yeah, because now they're all radio station. You tune to a radio station instead of using the – which when I first, I think as a kid, started going to the one in Lancaster, Ohio – it was we they still had the speaker boxes that you put in your car. Right. Exactly. But yes, you now do have to get a channel to put it. Yeah, you put your you audio. You have to up. have a channel and
1: we couldn't get a radio channel. Uh it would have been the perfect time because they're booming again. Well kind of booming, but well, we tried. yeah, we tried during the pandemic and I was gonna show like classic universal and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and we couldn't get it because all the channels were taken. Ah, uh, that's a shame. Yeah. That's a shame. I respect the ones that
0: are still out there because like I said, I got to Growing up in the 90s, I still got to go see movies at a drive-in, which is really cool and it's still open to this day. So yeah. get out there and support your local independent drive-in for sure.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. If you have one.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but,
0: absolutely. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, we do get an emergence here. But I think Dr. Shock and I had talked about, you know, you've got the American film industry is going in a completely different direction. They're going in through major changes. So it's up to Europe at this point to kind of carry the torch. And Hammer's trying to strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Well, they get all this competition coming in finally from other markets. And like we said, they start getting weird. We see Dracula in the 70s and swinging London. We see a swashbuckling vampire. We see the Kung Fu Fu vampire film. I mean, you're getting everything. And then their final horror film that they would release would be To the Devil, A Daughter.
1: Um, Mm, Which I have seen, yeah.
0: Yeah. Not the greatest. Um, No in my opinion, but, and then they would go on. I think their very last film was a remake of the lady vanishes by Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, And I think they had done a couple, maybe not, but I thought they did a couple of Hitchcock remakes. I'm thinking of the 39 steps, but maybe not. But you're right. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. Yeah. But at this point they're trying to do anything in 76, they actually launched the house of hammer magazine, which was pretty popular in Britain. And, Unfortunately, it would only have one film that would come out concurrently with it. That was a horror film. But from what I understand, they did some pretty good graphic retellings of there are some of their old movies and they do articles on films coming out. I don't know if you had had any experience with that or ever heard about that, Matt. No, I haven't. I found out about it through well through my research. But first, I think Mark Gaddis was the first person who had talked about um, from the BBC had talked about his love for House of Hammer magazine that had come out. And that's probably just a regional thing, right? You wouldn't probably see that in the States. No, I've I've never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mark Gaddis is really, really insightful. He had his own series, a short mini-series with the BBC, where he went over kind of the history of horror up until like the 70s. And um, he did a specific European one, but he had talked
1: about House of Hammer magazine in there. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. You know, I tried to collect Fangoria magazines when I was young, My parents objected to it, so I had to hide (laughs) it. But no, I never heard of that.
0: And probably another part of that is it only ran for two years. It ran from 76 to 78, and it would be out of circulation at that point. And then Hammer's last breath here would be they would do two TV anthology series. First, in 1980, they put out um, Hammer House of Horror which were comprised of 13 episodes that were more anthology films. Um, I haven't seen any of these. I've heard there's, just like with any anthology series, there's some good ones and there's some phoned-in ones. Um, And then in 84, they would do Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense, and that would also run for 13 episodes before it was completed. Right. Um, After that, Hammer completely ceased production for the better part of a few decades. Yeah, but they have resumed, right? Yes, and that's what I want to talk about, this modern kind of Hammer revival. And it's not really what you would... It's not going to be as prolific as what it was back in their heyday. But exclusive films and Hammer were revived, I think, in 2007 or 2008. They came back into existence. Someone had bought the rights to those studios and reopened. And they've done some co-productions. They co-produced Let Me In, the remake of Let the Right One In. Um mm-hmm. They did Wakewood, which I think is really good underrated. Which I think Let Me In was actually a decent remake. Yeah, I think both of those are good. Let Me In and Wakewood. Um, They did The Woman in Black, which was a big one of the time. And that's a a decent enough. That's based off a famous stage play in um, England. And I hadn't seen the sequel to that, which I've heard is not great, but I like The Woman in Black. I think it's very... I think that's the most Hammer-esque film that they've put out so far. Mm. Because it's in that gothic tradition and it's Got that kind of brooding ghost story type thing. Right, so I right. think it's very English. Uh, they put out The Quiet Ones, which is not so good. Um, I don't know if you've seen that.
1: I have not, no.
0: That's from like 2014. And I cannot remember the name of the guy. It's Jared something that stars in that. Jared Harris, maybe? Um, don't know. But anyway, he's recognizable if you would see him. And then the most recent thing I know that they have put out was
1: The Lodge from 2019 okay i did see that i yeah, liked it i didn't yeah i didn't love it i liked it <laughs> if that I, makes sense
0: yeah no that makes sense i loved it personally i know i'm okay. um, up there with jay the dead as well who loved it last year i think that came yeah. out but i could see where
1: someone wouldn't like it yeah but i, I think that yeah it go ahead. lost me at points i thought it was well made it, it it's very well made it's very well shot it's very well directed I just, at points, I was just kind of like, eh, this is kind of boring. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. And it's, last year
0: was kind of, a, I think, a really good year for horror. But I don't think it was yeah. as high as the highs that we've seen in past years. Uh, no, I agree. That's fair to I, say. I, yeah. So, yeah, that's one of my top movies from 2020. But I don't think any of my films with from 2020 would have competed with other years that we've seen recently. But yeah. I mean, I, I a... didn't I didn't dislike it. I mean, I, I, I did like it. I just I didn't love it. That's fair. And, you know, it's very different. It came off the team that did Good Night, Mommy for their first film, which I think the two films, there's some similarities there. And I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily love where the lodge goes in places, but for the most part, I liked it. But that's that's pretty much all they've done up into this point. It'll be interesting to see if we get anything else from Hammer mm-hmm. and how the pandemic might have affected their production schedule. I know, I mean, that's from Let Me In came out in 2010, and we're looking at, I think they've done about eight movies since then.
1: So, well, it's, it's interesting that, so Universal has tried to, you know, reignite their classic monsters, right? Mm -hmm. They tried it once, it failed. Then they went to Blumhouse and you got The Invisible Man, and that took off. And so now they're talking about w- the Wolfman with Ryan Gosling. They're talking about, you know, Dracula. Hmm.
0: Which how many um, times can you reboot that Universal thing? Because they've tried how many times over the last couple of
1: years with like, oh, Dracula yeah. Untold and yeah. The Mummy. and. Well, what do you think about that? Do you think it's going to succeed or not? Do you Do you have any hopes for that or not? Yes,
0: I do have hopes for it, especially since... I think the Invisible Man elevated them to an extent. Yeah. That is a fantastic you, film. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I
1: I thought that was a great film.
0: And I like the original Invisible Man. It's not like going to top something like the Wolfman or Dracula from the, you know, 30s and 40s yeah. for me. Yeah. But I like it. I think it's a good film. It's definitely a unique film I think in that set of movies. But I love the Invisible Man and I I do have some hope going forward. I don't think they were ever going to succeed with the um tom cruise mummy and then uh, but they had a. Uh,
1: because tom it, cruise always has to be filmed running and yeah, the so, yeah and they yeah, had yeah. russell crowe who was going to be Dr. yeah Temple. yeah that was yeah. Work, yeah
0: but i think they've got some interesting people lined up and i think they've got a backing now that they've had a success
1: yeah i i i agree i am mm. cautiously okay. optimistic well, yeah, it, that's a good way to put it. I, I I tell my congregation that, you know, an optimist is someone who doesn't understand the situation. You know, it, uh, we'll see. But I'm not so sure about Ryan Gosling of the Wolfman. Yeah, I don't know, because even the things
0: that I absolutely love him and like Drive, he's not right. emoting there a whole lot. And
1: the Wolfman mm-hmm. is such a tragic character. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's. You know, I I kind of want to go back and give a kind of an alt control delete to Benicio del Toro.
0: <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that in forever, but yeah. I just think he's a better actor. Yeah. No, uh, Benicio, Benicio del Toro is awesome.
1: Yeah, I you know, and when I watch the um, director's cut of that, it's much better film. Is it really? Yeah, and that is. had Anthony Hopkins in it too, right? Yep. Yeah. I got to go back and revisit that director's cut then. I, I, yeah, I would. It's a much better film. It's not great, but it's a much better film. Yeah. I got to check that out. I completely
0: understand where you're coming from, or maybe it's getting a little too big again, because that was the problem with the Tom Cruise film, right? I mean, that's too big of a, I don't know. Maybe it's too big of a name to put in a film like that. and requires a little too much around it. I, I think you, the invisible man was given plenty of room to be this creepy tense film and I don't uh, know how much of that is,
1: you know, the acting of Elizabeth Moss and the directing of. Well, yeah. She's amazing in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think she was robbed of an Oscar nomination myself.
0: Yes. But they're always robbed, right? <laughs> yeah. They are. Yeah. We're never going to get our due, Matt, unless they change how Hollywood uh, votes. But yeah, I agree with you there. There's been several people worthy of an Oth- of an Oscar in the past few years from yeah. the horror genre. But no, I, I can understand your skepticism, but you gotta wonder, Universal. I think Universal has a lot of the rights to those Hammer films, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Because I've seen them on Peacock, I believe. Um, a lot of them over there that way. I don't know if we could have a hope for a, a revival within Hammer, but maybe some smaller scale films. But well, maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just happy that Hammer, that Hammer name is back because that's an iconic name and that's. Yeah, I am too. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah. Yeah, and they are back, and yeah. Yeah, it would be a cool thing to see them compete with the new Universal reboot. No, I
0: totally agree. And again, Universal doesn't own the rights to those novels. They just own the rights to the characters that they created. Right. So never say never. I mean, we've seen how many of those, how many IP fall into like the public domain and they're just – Passed around like Sherlock Holmes. I think we saw an influx of Sherlock Holmes films. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, it would be cool to see Hammer like compete with Universal for the Dracula and Wolfman and Invisible Man. That would be cool. I I think that horror fans would be well served by that. Yeah, and I think there's room for that gothic horror element
0: too, right? Because I don't think we're going to see gothic elements i don't know but i don't know that we're going to see a whole lot of gothic elements come out of these new uh, universal films
1: uh probably not um yeah probably not yeah it would be be cool to see hammer do like kind of indie kind of thing yeah
0: yeah total agreement so i think that's about all i had on hammer again we've kind of gushed over how we much we like their films here. And I, I think that's true. I think they're so distinct and they have their place in the pantheon of famous runs of like horror studios or actors or anything like that. So anything else you want to add on
1: Hammer here, Matt? No, other than just, you know, if you're listening to this, check it out. I mean, I, I understand if you were like your first horror film was... Friday, 13th, part three or whatever, and you're thinking, "Eh, you know, I get it. But go back and check these films out because it was really cool for me. Maybe it won't be for you, but uh, I think it will give you a perspective, if nothing else. And I think that if, you know, if nothing else and Jackson, I've talked about this a lot. The cinematography, the editing, all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's so well done. Yep. You know, I really appreciate what Hammer did. They really seem to love these movies. Yep. And so I beg you to check them out.
0: Yep. And I would echo that. Absolutely. Because I'm, and I have never really understood the whole point of like, uh, you know, you you love the seventies and eighties movies, but you don't really dive back any further than that. Um, I've never understood that because I've always been kind of historically minded and I like to see that older stuff. And I know you're the same way, Matt. Um, Yeah, but I was born in you know, 1990 and I have no problem going back to 60s, 50s, 40s. And I just urge anyone like any of these older films that I'm covering with Val Luton's stuff or some of that those old Italian horror films in the 60s that are maybe a little more offbeat or something. I think you're doing yourself a favor if you go and check those out. And you're not going to like all of them, but there might be a few that stick out to you. And isn't that worth it to kind of get a couple hidden gems that you never had
1: thought about watching that stick with you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, yeah, look, if nothing else, if you're a horror fan, you need to have some context. Guys, (laughs) you need to have some context. So go back in the past so that you understand the entire expanse. Yep. Well said.
0: Um with that, you want to tell people
1: where they can find you, Matt? Yeah, I'm um I record a podcast with my son at at FatherSon Horror on Twitter, father son com. And so we're at ninety some episodes and Trey's on a couple of those and yeah. Appreciate your listening
0: in. Yeah, absolutely. Mostly talking about European stuff because I'm weird like that. But um... No,
1: you're not <laughs> weird like that. That's cool stuff.
0: Um, but yeah, no, I, like I said, I always appreciated being on your show. And if you haven't, I can't imagine if you're listening to this, if you haven't checked out father and son horror, but go check it out because love that show. It's a great dynamic between yourself. Who's much more experienced and watched all these films for and Jackson, who's kind of discovering. And I love that period where you're oh, discovering yeah. horror and you're checking out these classics and you're loving these classics. And I can't, I remember when I was in that period, it just kind of
1: takes me back to that. So it's an awesome show. Oh, thank you, buddy. Yeah. And yeah, Jackson, 18 years old in film school, freshman in film school. And we have Patreon supporters, which Trey is one, And all proceeds go to helping Jackson get through film school, which we appreciate. So thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know I've been there pretty much since you guys opened it, but it's definitely grown. I've seen um, over there on Patreon. So that's good to get Jackson some more more yeah,
1: fun. that's his job. That helps, like, get him food and stuff. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So definitely check
0: that out. At least check it out if you're not gonna support him. At least check out the show. Support him on Patreon. That is this podcast can be found over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. I also have an email address at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. And there's a website, ScreamingThroughTheAges.com, where it hosts all of the episodes. And I want to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please go out there, share it with your friends, subscribe on your podcast feed. And until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.